0: Sleep, I don't, I don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired.
1: Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard.
0: Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories.
1: You know the show is interactive, right? You know. You can find us on Instagram, rock and roll bedtime stories. You can hit our website. We are the story The email address is there too. That is, we are the story guys at gmail.com. Like this one from Steve, Steve H Steve. Appreciate you, buddy. Thank you for writing. He says, Hey guys, as a fellow knows a million random musical facts that my friends don't give a damn about aficionado, <laughs> which I have to say, we totally should have named the podcast that I think it would have been a little long for the RSS feed,
0: but I love it. It's unique. I, if I could give a virtual hug to anyone <laughs> in this universe right now, Steve even, if I, even if there was someone that had the answer to all of the world's problems, screw them. I choose Steve. I want, I want Steve H because I like my people just like my Listen people. Man, right. I, I felt, yeah,
1: just the way that was written, I was like, this is a kindred soul. This is a guy who gets us and we get him. So Steve, you're getting a virtual podcast hug right now from the both of us. It's like a group hug. It's non sexual, but it's very comforting. And I hope you enjoy well, it.
0: That just depends. But you know, <laughs> wish you were here, buddy. It's okay. So let's let's hear what let's hear what Steve so, H.'s question so was.
1: Steve H. says, I suggest you guys spend some time talking about Harry Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Now we we did a brief overview of Harry, a very brief overview of Harry way back on episode 37. On the episode we called Mama Cass versus the Ham Sandwich because... Oh, remember that's this? right. Yeah, He plays a big part in that story. Actually, he doesn't. His apartment does. And we won't really touch on that fascinating part of history here. So if you want to go back and grab that episode, if you're intrigued, it's just another way that Harry plays a major but understated role in rock history. And that's one of the big takeaways from looking at Harry. Harry is one of these guys that music people like you and I love to talk about. But I don't know if the non nerd slash how did steve say it uh knows a million random musical facts that my friends don't give a damn about aficionado i don't know if the people who aren't like that know a whole lot about this
0: guy like how yeah. much do you know about harry nelson let let me tell you so i i think it's great that steve's asking the question because you know what i know about harry nelson there's a couple songs i know and i've i there's some that i've had to play on the radio sure. Like, sure. literally like yeah that came up. They weren't ones that I picked, but the one thing I know about him is that when John Lennon like was hanging out having the Lost Weekend, like he was hanging out with Harry. Oh yeah, he that's, was. That's, that's yeah, he all, was. That, that's that is the only thing I know because I'm like a Beatles maniac, and so so
1: this is not a Lost Weekend it. episode, though it could be. I will say that if you want to dive into the Lost Weekend stuff, uh, I actually. We posted on Instagram earlier this week in prep for this show uh, a, a piece from – there is a a blog, and I do not believe they have a podcast, called Rock and Roll Storytime, so similar. And they did a whole piece on The Lost Weekend and about Harry and John going crazy. I mean, there are so many good stories about Harry Nelson, uh, including during this time, Harry, John, and Ringo all go to the Smothers Brothers show at like the Troubadour or something and they get kicked out for heckling the Smothers Brothers? Oh, they, they really? And it's oh like a gosh. well-documented thing. And the best part is that they got this Mother's Brothers to be in the Harry Nelson documentary back in '06, which we'll mention because that's a big piece if you really want to dig into the Harry Nelson stuff. That's sort of like the, the piece people point to is that documentary. But like you, you mentioned the songs. Let's talk a, about a few of these songs real quickly. How about this one? Okay.
0: Said oh, my gosh.
1: If living is without you You know this song's been covered 180 times D- So did he write no, this No he didn't arra- write this. this No he arranged it Do you know who wrote this song No Badfinger This is a Badfinger song <laughs>
0: it is. Here. i was shocked when i read that uh, what, what's happening hold on i'm freaking out so we feel like i feel like this beer i just drank all night is turned into <laughs> mushrooms what so wait that uh, so it can't live without you is that what it, it's is called that what it's, it's called without you i
1: just i want you it's to hear what it's, with, it's it's without without you. You. that's you. what it's That's what it's called. Let me hear. Let let me let you hear what it sounds like when Badfinger does this song.
0: Well, I can't forget this evening and your face when you
1: leave. It sounds like a foreigner song. All that acoustic guitar, man. I mean, it's different. Uh, Harry arranges it and makes it sacred. Like he puts all the strings in it and and you know he, he shows off his range which is a big thing the big hairy thing is that he has this massive range that if you watch people talk about him who got to be in the room with him uh when he sang it, they'll tell you there's nothing like hearing that guy sing in person like it's just it was yeah. this uh, it, There was several people describe it as like a narcotic or like a drug like you just you couldn't believe the way it made you feel to
0: watch this guy sing he had a like a three octave range at one point to- and totally far out. I did totally didn't know about anything about that. So,
1: so it's a bad finger song. He covers it, but it gets covered over and over and over. You know, the version of that song, this is totally my age. The version of that song that I know is the Mariah Carey version.
0: Oh, I don't even know that.
1: Yeah. So this is a result of having an older sister. We talk a lot on this show about the musical impact of your older sister. We don't talk about the older sister musical influence on me because... No, we don't. Well, it it was terrible. (laughs) That's why we don't talk about it. She's the reason I know Mariah's music box, and she's the reason that I know Whitney Houston's Bodyguard soundtrack, which is funny because I've still never seen the movie Bodyguard, and neither has she, I bet. Uh, Hey, neither have I. I was not allowed to watch that garbage as a kid, and we just, for some reason, we had the soundtrack... Totally separate from the movie, so we just like yeah. we loved the soundtrack, and we knew it was to a movie, but we enjoyed it without any context as to what that movie was. So,
0: did you did you ever have the self titled Whitney debut? Did you ever have that? I, thing? I
1: currently have that. It's probably okay, within I, arm's reach if I looked around. I,
0: I wouldn't even need to talk. Okay, keep moving. We let's get back to Harry instead of talking about anything else. Okay. okay. Well, okay. here's we'll another sidetrack, which never happens here. Anyway,
1: <laughs> here's another one you probably know. I'm pretty sure when like, Diet Coke came out with Diet Coke with Lime, they bought the rights of this song. Because that's what I think of every time I hear this song, is a Diet Coke commercial.
0: She put the lime in she drank and poured up, she put the lime in the coconut, she called the doctor, woke him up and said, doctor, ain't there nothing?
1: What an underrated <laughs> songwriter, right? Well, I, you know, and I don't know that he is underrated. Like, yes, he's here's the thing we're going to talk about today, right?
0: Like, he if is. you walked up to someone on the street and you're like, name three Harry Nielsen songs. No, I know. So this is, the, this is, you're, fail.
1: you're, you're exactly right. This is the thing, though. He is what I call an artist's artist.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great.
1: You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. artists. Like him, musicians love him, they're hugely influenced by him. But these guys are never household names themselves. Uh, I mean, help me think of people in this category. One that comes to mind for me is like Big Star, right? Total artist, artist. Like, people don't know Big Star, but you and I could talk about Big Star for an hour and a half without a script, right? Like, yeah,
0: right. Who who else is in that category? Um, like. Nick Cave, like, sure, like that's a good one. Dinosaur Junior, or whatever. I mean, I like. think you
1: could put John Prine, maybe in that category. Yeah, right, right, right. Towns Van Zant is probably. I mean, I think Graham Parsons is in that category to a certain extent. Yeah, let's do one more. This is going to lead sort of to what we're talking about because w- let me play the song first.
0: <laughs> Just play the track.
1: this is another one that isn't his song like it's ironic because some of the songs he is most known for are not songs he wrote while he wrote a ton of songs for other people and for himself that Did Glink Campbell
0: write this one?
1: No. So this I've uh, I've got the guy's name written down somewhere, but no, it is it's not a name that you're going to know like that off the top of your right. head. But yeah, this this is the song that opens Midnight Cowboy.
0: Yeah. When when it started to play, I was dead silent because I was like, "Oh, it's like Midnight Cowboy," and I was like, "Oh, that's that." It's it's. Are, are you a Midnight stuff. Cowboy guy? No, I I just recall the opening of it. Yeah. And, I mean, it's and, iconic.
1: It's it's like one of the most iconic moments in, in American film. And so he is closely associated with that. And I think it's interesting because a lot of what we're going to talk today is about how Harry Nelson has this fascination throughout his entire career
0: with Hollywood. So cool. Oh, I'm so super excited. Brian, thank you for taking us on this journey to Hollywood, which, well, by the way, what a weird place to find John Lennon on the West Coast <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> doing, doing monstrous amounts I, I keep of telling blow you, with Harry Nielsen. We're you know? we're not going.
1: We're not going to that story. But there is some stuff in yeah. the show notes if you want to go into that story because it's great. Um, also, like yeah. during part of that story is that Yoko Ono tells him to save their marriage. He needs to go have an affair with their like yeah. assistant yeah. or housekeeper it's, or whatever. Yes, his their assistant. Yeah, yeah. Wild. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. You mentioned the coast. Before we get to the west coast, we start on the east coast. Brooklyn, New York, is where he is born. Uh, born mostly destitute, uh, he he would talk in interviews and stuff about how his mom went to jail a couple times for, for bouncing checks, writing hot checks, um, because she's trying to feed the family. So he was always worried about having enough, because he did not have enough as a kid, and this forces him into working at a pretty young age. But if you want to keep focused on his music and get his autobiography, he does a little bit of this in his songs. There's songs like 1941 about the year he was born daddy's song. They dive into the details that Harry's dad left the family and he was raised by his mama and some pretty stellar grandparents and an uncle who helped him figure out how to sing. Wow. Yeah. So they moved to California when he's a teenager. He works at the Paramount theater for a while, plays music with a buddy. There doesn't finish high school. But despite that, (laughs) fakes his way into a job at a bank near the the dawn of early computers. He gets shoved in like trying to figure out how to use these new monstrosities in banking and he's like pretty good at it. And so people just keep letting him work there and advancing him in his career. And so even while he is trying to to write songs and become a recording artist, he's working at this bank. Like for a while, he stays at the bank And, and these two things overlap. His first real job is as a singer. He starts singing demos for a songwriter who needs to get his tunes out to people. And by 63 he's experimenting in songwriting and he, he gets he just sort of walks into these chances where he gets to write for folks in the early 60s like Little Richard, Phil Spector and the Monkees.
0: Oh my gosh. So wow. So he so he was writing, not only singing. Singing, yeah, singing like other people's
1: stuff and then writing his own stuff for other people to sing. Which is oh interesting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So,
0: and, and so eventually he meets
1: Mickey Dolan. He meets Mickey Dolan's. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to we'll you talk, know, we'll all get the drugs there, he yeah. does with Mickey Dolenz. Uh, so yeah. through some of these associations with composers and publishers, he does get a record deal and releases some of his own music. But it never does that much when he's the one singing at first. His songs have more success when other people's re- people record them. The Shangri-Las record them early. Fred Astaire records a Harry Nelson song. Uh, Glenn Campbell records a Harry Nelson song in the Yardbirds.
0: Oh, I I want to know all of these songs, Brian. I am fascinated by this. This is so cool. Like as soon as you said Yardbirds, like I started to get a little bit of a chubby. I'm really excited because <laughs> anything that gets even around Led Zeppelin, I'm like, what's happening here? So for for reals, okay. So so, so, uh, so he you- was a he was like a like Chris Stapleton. He was like a guy. I mean, yeah, like you, you could
1: make that comparison if you just wanted to make sort of a rough comparison to somebody who's, who's modern, right. Who starts as a songwriter, isn't a character, characteristically, uh, captivating or beautiful person really. Right. So he's a little bit more behind the scenes, but he's in the right rooms and he starts to rub elbows with all these people. and, uh, and, and back to this thing about him being an artist, artist that we've already talked about, right? Like, I think he is the early template for this. There's this 2006 documentary about him that I mentioned. Uh, you can find the links in the show notes. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube if you've not seen it. And it's literally called Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him?
0: Oh, yes. And it is is—it is a deliciously wonderful documentary. And Most all the faces are there, music. man.
1: Yeah, all, yeah. These, all these famous people that you know. And while it's obviously that title is playing on his musical output, uh, it works because it illustrates this idea very explicitly. And the opening moments of that film have very famous celebrities saying basically, well, you either know who Nelson is or you don't.
0: Yeah. And for me, it was a great experience... Because it was a little bit of more of a, like, I guess I had kind of a primer of a little bit, and it was addition. It was addition to yeah. that.
1: Yeah, it's really good. He he may be the ultimate artist. artist, given that he is an artist loved by the ultimate artist, the Beatles. The Beatles were name-dropping him, calling him their favorite American artist in interviews in the, in oh, the
0: early 60s. Really?
1: Yeah. And Derek Taylor, the Beatles publicist, is said to have had a box of Harry Nilsson records that he was passing around at some point.
0: I am fast fascin- and oh my gosh! Well, and do, so, do you know about you can't do that? I love this song. I've like played this song in front of people. Love this song. Okay, so let's listen to both versions of this song, right? Okay, uh, yeah. So okay. there's
1: there's you can't do that. It's on Hard Day's Night. It was a it was a single first, and it ends up on Hard Day's Night. Nilsson takes this song and he does a version of this song that has become maybe more famous than the Beatles' version. And it is become by those musicologists who like to hear themselves talk, uh, sometimes referred to as the first mashup, because what he does is rearranges the song and then throughout it drops references to other Beatles songs. Okay. <laughs> so just listen to this, and listen, and you'll you'll hear it immediately. What he's doing with this song. And you have to be a pretty big Beatles fan, but you're going to, there's, even if you're not, you'll catch a few of these.
0: My babe, don't buy me presents. How can you laugh when you know I'm down? Beep, 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 beep yeah. I got something to say that might cause you pain if I catch you talking to that boy again.
1: He shoves like seventeen or eighteen Beatles references into a Beatles song, but it's wow. at, but he does it what like in halftime or quarter time? Like it's super slow. It's it's so slow. Yeah. It, it's
0: so weird. It's so weird. The whole idea is weird, and the Beatles love it. The Beatles love this when they hear it. Why? Why wouldn't they? Like that sounds like a a a fantastic like bow like tribute to like yeah. Like really, when you say mashup, it is so appropriate.
1: I mean, it it, it is. It feels goofy saying a song from the sixties is like a mashup, but it's really what it is. It's like you could you could hear someone doing this with Taylor Swift songs right now, right?
0: Right, something something that's pervasive, like through through all of it, where you know the titles because the songs are like are if impactful. I explain,
1: yeah, if I explain this premise to you by saying someone w- went on YouTube last week and they they took a song from Taylor Swift's Fearless album and then over top of it they drop they sang references to every song on Midnight's. You'd be like, yeah, that sounds very Gen Z. <laughs> but but right. this happened in 1964. So uh, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. And if you want one more, one more proof of this artist-artist argument, uh, Harry Nelson meets a guy in the early 70s who's coming into his own. He's not famous yet. His name is Randy Newman. They will do an <laughs> album together because <laughs> Nelson right. likes his songs. And the album is called Nelson Sings Newman. And this album does not sell. But magazines, like Stereo Review, for instance, will name it the record of the year for 1970. Critics, musicians, tastemakers, they love this dude. And the story can really be boiled down to this, right? Harry Nelson is just quietly in a lot of rooms. Like, in the 1960s, you're in a cool room with a bunch of cool people. Harry Nelson's probably chilling in the corner. It puts him in the frame for a lot of crazy stories. Now, the most famous of these stories you've already started talking about out of the gate and that is the Hollywood Vampires Drinking Club.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's upstairs at the Rainbow. Well, it actually, Alice Cooper started it, and he had a spot, he had a couple spots in London, and then their their spot in Hollywood was at the Rainbow Club. But they had different yeah. places they would go, depending on what city they were in. And the whole idea here is that Alice starts meeting up with these people in his similar circuit and feels, and I I think that it probably started as like an informal joke at first, but slowly there's a structure that builds up that the idea is you can be in this club. If you can drink everyone else in the club under the table, at least once That's (laughs) your hazing. So yeah, if you look around on the internet and you've mentioned some of these names, you're going to find lists of the who was and who wasn't in this club at some point, along with a lot of names of people who were disputed. Like maybe they were, maybe they weren't, or they had special guest status. So Here's what I've got. Cooper, Keith Moon, Ringo Starr, Mickey Dolenz and Harry Nelson were like the core. John Lennon and Keith Emerson got to guest. Keith Emerson. Which is hilarious to me that oh, Keith Emerson, I'm like Lake and Palmer
0: sh- are like in the oh, studio
1: holy. working hard and Keith Emerson's drinking
0: Mickey Dolenz under the table. I can't even get my freaking head around. Keep going. Where are we going? What's the next Uh, tier? Brian Wilson and Iggy Pop were like, maybe they were,
1: maybe they weren't. Yeah. And then there's another string of names that people were, I think definitely were at some point in the club, and that includes Mark Bolin, uh, which seems par. Wow. But also, Bernie Toppin is on that list.
0: How crazy. I mean,
1: it's time for Bernie Toppin to get some. Elton's been getting it all. So I'm glad that Bernie's out there drinking too much. But
0: I, I hope so. I, I know you way, want to talk about the Rainbow Room, Doc. Just go ahead. No, 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 it's not even that. Who I want to talk about is Alice Cooper, who is the head of this whole thing, which I think I, I find a fascinating guy. We haven't talked about him as much. Uh, no. But, and for me, it's like it's kind of old hat, his whole thing, because it's been it's been like with Marilyn Manson and everything at this point. Like, but what's so interesting to, to me is that, you know, he ended up doing like these charity softball things with all those he guys. He like became a Christian they, for a while. Yeah. And he's like a conservative guy. So he's a conservative guy. In, in and the he music bought industry. the Hollywood
1: sign, dude. Because yeah. he was so concerned about Hollywood. Uh, we've talked about this on the show, Alice Cooper buying that. We've talked a nice long story about the Hollywood sign, if you want to go back in the catalog. Uh,
0: and Love and Love Hate. The, love hate. That amazing story. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, that's a band, not just a, a relationship with Hollywood. Are you caught up on rock and roll bedtime stories and desperate for more rock and roll history? Well, don't worry. We have another pod to recommend for you. Did you know Jackson Brown? Only 16 when he wrote These Days for Nico. And she, of course, cut that song alongside Andy Warhol. By 20, he'd written Take It Easy for the Eagles and then put out five, five quintessential 70s records in succession. In season one of After the Deluge podcast, your host, Justin Cox, is going to take you album by album through the Jackson Brown discography with a new guest each week, including, and I cannot believe this, Jackson Brown, himself on the finale episode. The full Jackson Brown season is available wherever you listen to podcasts. In season two of After the Deluge, it's all about Connor Burst, Bright Eyes. It's in full swing right now, and all you have to do is search After the Deluge wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Uh, someone who did have a love relationship with Hollywood. I, You know, you see this overlap a lot with rock stars sort of wanting to be in the film industry in some way shape or form i mean you even see it with the beatles right we'll talk about this in a minute but ringo star that's like what he does the reason everyone disrespects ringo star is well the other guys were making cool solo albums ringo star was trying to be in movies that nobody was seeing but harry Nilsson is got this association first through his music but for a while he's got this association with film and with Hollywood. And so, yes, Hollywood Vampires may be his most famous association with the word Hollywood, but he starts pushing into the in with his music early. I, I remember being in my 20s and driving somewhere, and I think I talked about this on the Bob Cass episode briefly, driving with a group of friends and having my pal Jeff put on this album from his childhood that he loved called The Point. Were you into that? That 1970 no. piece of pop culture?
0: No, that's, that's totally alien to me.
1: Okay, l- let me just read the synopsis of this. The the point is a fable that tells the story of a boy named Oblio, the only round-headed person in the pointed village, where by law, everyone and everything must have a point. Nelson explained his inspiration for the point as, quote, I was on acid, and I looked at trees, and I realized they all came to points. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God. Dude, basically just children's programming conceived through drug use, which is very late 60s and probably how Sesame Street happened too. Uh, the point an animated adaptation of the story first aired February 2nd, 1971, and was the first animated feature ever to air in primetime on U.S. television. First animated feature to ever air in primetime is a Harry Nelson production of his album. And it's funny because depending on what, what you read, some things, hell. some things act oh like God. the cartoon was first and this was the soundtrack, but I don't think that's right. I think the album is first and the cartoon comes second. And yeah, this is so you mentioned off mic. I think I don't think we have the mics on that. You, when you worked in radio, people would call and be like, I really love me and my arrow. Like that's from the point. Oh, Okay.
0: Yeah, and, and for me, I had no point of reference. I was like, okay. No, this this is I, I,
1: huge. So this is a movie of the week at some point. There's even a stage adaptation of this later. It's
0: a really oh. big deal, and it has had a huge lasting impact. By the way, I want to give you a big hug, Brian. I don't know anything about any of this stuff, man. And <laughs> you, and, and I remember... You're I, keeping I remember, up. You're keeping up. No, it, it's so it was so interesting because... It, it was. I was. It was like a, a rainy Saturday. I'll never forget it. And I was like, I remember seeing. Like, it's interesting when you're working at a radio station where you can pick a decent amount of songs to play, whatever. And I was like, I don't know what that Harry Nielsen song was. And it was almost instantaneous that I got messages I from go people. Home. People
1: love this song.
0: Wherever we. Knows, me my
1: arrow. I guarantee you we will get an email from someone with a very personal story about their attachment to this song or this special. This was huge. And what's crazy is the one thing you probably know about Harry Nilsson, if I just said name an album, is Nilsson Schmilsson, because yeah, that's what most that's people it. know. This is his most that's famous thing. And sure. this is before that. Yeah, right. Also, Nilsson yeah. Schmilsson is his, get ready for this, seventh album. <laughs> I used to think he was like limited on output That's clearly not the case And then after he does Nilsson Schmilson, He gets a little obtuse This is classic behavior from him You'll see this over and over He gets his biggest taste of success And then purposely starts to fuck with everyone He puts out this album called Son of Schmilson, And he starts cussing and being suggestive uh, Writing sort of like more body stuff And it has got my my favorite
0: you break breaking
1: Oh, he- <laughs> apart, oh, so yeah, this is a song about his divorce. <laughs> I mean, like, this is what he did after his his largest success is he was like, cool, I'm just going to write an, an album about my divorce. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, I mean, it, it's a great song. And the rest of the record's great, too. Right after that, the lottery song. I mean, like, this, all this stuff is killer. Like, the next thing he does what? is this, after that record, he does this record called A Little Touch of Smilson uh, in the night and it is literally i'm not kidding him doing pop standards in front of an orchestra
0: my brain is just exploding with joyful music freak show okay so with your break in my heart where are, we, are where are we at are we at 71 72 772 okay mm-hmm. all right i just want i just wanted to hear that there's a song that's on an lp that says fuck you on it which is
1: <laughs> by which, like a guy oh, who also did without you the
0: year before yeah, which which is oh my God, so wonderful. Okay. So right, so, so then he so does then like they-
1: he goes from yelling that about his divorce into this, I'm gonna stand in okay. front of an orchestra and do pop standards.
0: It's a little touch of Schmielson in the night. In the night, always-
1: yeah. It he pisses off his record label so much, this is a true story. He takes the Beatles to his negotiation meeting with RCA Records so that they won't <laughs> drop him. John Lennon and Ringo Starr go. This is amazing. They go to his label meeting and they make suggestive comments about we We might have to leave Apple, and if we left Apple, we might want to sign to RCA. But man, we'd want to be on the same label as our friend Harry Nilsson, and it totally works.
0: Oh my god! They re- How? they
1: How? renew his contract. So is John and Ringo? Is that right? John and Ringo. Oh my god! That is that is a freaking amazing. It's amazing. But this whole time, even before this point, Harry keeps one foot in film. A lot of this is in music. He has the theme to the sitcom Courtship Courtship of Eddie's Father. Did you ever watch that? Reruns of that?
0: It was on the late 60s. No idea what that is.
1: Big hit because of Midnight Cowboy. We already talked about that. And do you know about Son of Dracula? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dude. You you thought you'd heard the best Beatles Harry Nilsson story? You have not yet. Okay, so Son of Schmilson that album with uh, You're Breaking My Heart, Harry used horror movie motifs on that, and he used a drummer named Ringo Starr. So when those sessions end, Ringo comes to Harry with this idea that he wants to make a rock and roll Dracula movie. And Harry's like, oh yeah, it's because of Son of Schmillson, right? Like all the horror movie stuff we were doing. And Ringo's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just want to make a, I just want to make a cool rock and roll Dracula movie. Will you star in it? Oh
0: my gosh. And so... What? The hell is happening
1: Dude it's in the show notes You can watch all 90 minutes of it It is a movie Called Son of Dracula And in it Harry Nilsson stars As Count Down D-O-W-N-E Countdown
0: what oh my god can he not can he not can he not see sunlight too
1: dude the whole thing is wild ringo star plays merlin and he's in a wig the whole time it is just it's batshit and this is what i'm talking about no one talks about the fact that at some point ringo star was like and this' was like the third or fourth movie ringo star had made after the, in this period he's making terrible movies I, people forget that the beatles were in movies right like because that's not how we think about them now But they were in movies to sort of push the phenomenon. But then Ringo's like, I'm going to go be an actor. And no, he he wasn't. By the early 80s, Nilsson actually starts referring to himself as a retired musician. And he's really only focusing on film projects. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it gets weirder. He writes the songs for Popeye,
0: the Robert Altman, Robin Williams movie. I'm I'm freaking stunned. Someone brought this up a couple weeks ago. I remember seeing that movie as a kid and being like, "Dude, this is totally weird." I begged my parents to let me rent that movie,
1: begged them because I loved Robin Williams from probably from Aladdin at that point. That about checks out age-wise, and. I was like, dude, it's Popeye, which I know is kid-friendly. Like, I was obsessed with film at a young age, and I was not allowed to watch a lot of it. So I would have to, like, launch these campaigns for movies that I thought I'd be allowed to watch. So I would get the TV guide back when they would put it in the, t- in the newspaper, and they would put a little synopsis of every movie that was showing on cable, and they would put a rating, and they would say what objectionable content was in it. And so I would, like, go find the ones that didn't have objectionable content but looked like they were watchable, and I'd be like, I should be able to watch this movie. And I would like make a campaign.
0: Oh my gosh, I can't believe that you would do that, and that I had a VCR and I recorded <laughs> part- Hot Dog the movie. <laughs> I was I was recording Private School off of Cinemax, and my friends were coming over at four o'clock in the afternoon to watch it after school. Like, look at our freaking lives. Uh, I dude. adore you. I love you, my buddy. friend. I love that you. Are, were so freaking completely, totally different. That's super hysterical.
1: Remember what I said that Harry seemed. Like he's best at singing, but the thing he's second best at is like just meeting interesting people and being around them and in the frame with him as his foray into all these things get deeper. At some point he meets Terry Southern. Do you know that name?
0: No, I don't know who that is at all. Okay. So he's
1: like the Forrest Gump of pop culture. If, if Forrest Gump did too many drugs and was terrible with money, he would be Terry Southern. Uh, so this guy was fucking everywhere. And I will prove that statement before telling you all the other places he was by letting you know that this motherfucker is on the front of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Like his actual picture oh. is, in that, <laughs> is in that collage.
0: So, oh my god. He, he was so
1: born in 1924. He has this crazy career. It spans from hanging out with beat writers and jazz greats. Like at one point, like I read something he was like looking for apartments with Artie
0: Shaw. I like Artie Shaw. Who doesn't like so Artie Shaw? I don't know. People and they, that don't like Artie Shaw. So I after
1: know. that, after his foray into apartment hunting with Artie Shaw, apparently, he's writing and working on films like Doctor Strangelove with Kubrick. Uh He's famously like on amphetamine barbiturates, like Dexamil, the diet pill. He's like hardcore on that during the writing of Dr. Strangelove. He falls in with Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda and is like credited on Easy Writer, or maybe not credited, but should have been, or some weird shit. Oh,
0: oh, that is messed up.
1: Dude, when he's here, no, here's the stuff that's here's what's going to blow your mind. So he's done all that. When he's closing in on 60 years old in the
0: early 80s,
1: he gets hired on SNL
0: as a writer. In the early 80s when they were like everything when really bad. sucked. When it's really Everyth- bad, yeah. before Even before, like between Eddie Murphy yeah. uh-huh. time. Oh yeah, yeah, before Eddie Murphy.
1: And, I mean, if you have an evening to kill, just Google this guy and settle in. It is bananas. And in this way, he's actually sort of like Harry in that the way that Harry is always like somehow in the frame, Terry is always somehow in the frame. And so, of course these two would find each other, right? They have a lot in common, a lot of talent, a lot of good timing, a lot of passion for Hollywood. And they know each other for a bit. And I think Terry's like enlisting Harry on film projects by like the late 70s. But in 1985, their paths become inextricably linked when they recruit a former city core executive named James E. Hawk Jr. That's a real banker name if I've ever heard one. It sure is. To help give their dream some legit business credit. They open a production company and they call it Hawkeye Entertainment. So this guy, James E. Hawks Jr. is the CEO. They get this woman, Cindy Sims, handling business, and she's titled as the president of the company. And then these two dudes are like co-founders and vice presidents or something. It gets official in 85. But just to speed up the story and let you know how this goes, I'm going to read a bit from a 1988 LA Times piece covering Hawkeye Entertainment. Hawke, this guy who had been CEO, said he wanted to build a diversified entertainment company through acquisitions such as graphics firms. While Nelson and Southern wanted a so-called, quote, entertainment boutique that would work on specific projects they like. Hawk, who was ousted by Nilsson and Southern, is clearly bitter about his experience and suggests that investors have little faith in Nilsson, the businessman. Quote, when I left my office, the stock was at 38 cents a share and we were growing. The stock price today is six cents a share with no volume. So you figure it out, Hawk said. <laughs> To the LA times
0: 38 cents a share.
1: (laughs) Eric P. Littman, a Philadelphia lawyer who sits on a Hawkeye advisory board and owns about a hundred thousand shares, accuses Nelson and Southern of using the company to finance their pet projects, regardless of whether they will benefit shareholders. Well, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. Said Littman. They are artists with no business background. Now, it's earlier in this article that it's revealed that Harry Nilsson is now the CEO of this company. So like in 88, oh. he takes over as CEO. How weird. He was supposed he likes- to be interim and he likes it. So he's like, nah, I'm going to stay. Like they had hired an executive search committee and everything. And, they were like, and he just like, is like, nah, I'm going to be the CEO. And it's later in this article that Nilsson assures everyone that everything's going to be fine because, and this is where we get to the true meat of our story, like really where I was headed today. He says, listen, guys, everything's going to be cool. Because Hawkeye Entertainment is about to release our first big movie.
0: Oh, well, what is happening here? And I I can't wait to hear about it. So
1: Terry Southern is on the
0: record saying that he or
1: they had this idea that they wanted to write a script where an out-of-work actor is having these long conversations on the telephone. And they thought it would be really cool maybe get that guy who was in Popeye to do this. It seems like it would be really good. But the problem is Robin Williams has an agent and Robin Williams agent is like, there is no way in hell you're being in this movie while they write this script together, Harry and Terry, they start trying to figure out who they think they can get to star in it. And they've gone to see this woman do stand up a few times and they think she's really funny. And she's been doing some movies. And so they try to get this script in front of Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. Okay. And then, if we can get Whoopi Goldberg to be in this movie, who do we get to direct it? They'd seen some stage plays that the legend Rip Torn had directed. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had a buddy over for drinks the other night, and he told me some story about Rip Torn getting into a fight with Norman Mailer. And I was like, the fact that those two guys are in the same story alone is crazy. But here's, and it, and it, Rip, here's Rip Torn in this story. When he shows up to direct this movie, there's like the producers and there's him. And they're like, "Let Whoopi Goldberg, just improvise. And he's like, no, you have to stick with the script. So they like, start having all these arguments. It's hard to describe this movie. I will tell you that lucky for you, it is on Tubi and you can watch it right now from the comfort of your bed. And what's it, what's it called? It is called The Telephone.
0: Oh, man. It didn't work out for everybody.
1: So when the film was screened in New York, and this, is, this comes from a New York Times piece that is in the show notes, where the guy claims that seven people were at the screening, and one of them yelled, I want my money back, and the other one yelled, I hope the actual film breaks so I don't have to watch the end of this. Oh, uh, man. had a domestic gross of $99,000, but it cost uh, roughly $2 million to make. So they thought they would like oh, it's only two million, which in the scheme of things is pretty cheap for a movie, but it made it didn't make a hundred thousand dollars. I also like how like the official the official thing I found said it made ninety nine thousand nine hundred seventy eight dollars. Can you not just say it made a hundred thousand dollars? Well, somebody please give this movie twenty two dollars so we can say it broke a hundred thousand bucks.
0: Uh, You know, you know what stinks is that someone thought that that would be a great idea for a movie.
1: Oh, like well, I didn't even tell you really what happens in the movie. Can I can I ruin this movie? or Are you going to go watch it?
0: I'm not going to watch this movie. I either. did.
1: This is what I do for this podcast. No, I say oh, I man. I say I watched it. I didn't watch all of it. I watched enough you, of it to get a feel enough for
0: enough it. of it. Yeah, because you didn't need to watch so, all of
1: it. Oh my god, let me tell you though, I did look up the spoiler on what happens in this movie. So basically, this movie is just Whoopi Goldberg. So she walks oh, into this apartment
0: no one there's no one else. She's it's on the just, phone.
1: You only hear her.
0: Oh that oh it that's a, it's a play. Yeah, it's so it's like 80,
1: 80 90 minutes of her on the phone. And here's the big reveal. Oh, you find terrible. out you find out at the end that the phone doesn't work. Right. So she, yeah.
0: so she's this she's sick. Yeah. Or is she she's, she's mentally not well. Okay. Yeah. So that so it's an eighty ninety minute movie about a person that's mentally ill and Seem, they just, seems like you could have
1: done it in ten minutes. You know, like it, I, I don't know it, that you needed ninety of them.
0: And as as a friend of mine says, that's how they get you. you know, it's <laughs> like when they when you know, they they get you at the cash register or that Kohl's cash is just bullshit so, or whatever it is. Like that's how they get you. Here, that's it.
1: Speaking of speaking of how they get you, Whoopi Goldberg thought she was given approval over the film's final cut. And so when she sees the film, she's like, you can't put this shit out. And they're like, no, no, no. We never said you could have final approval. She's pissed at the way Rip Torn edits the movie. She files a $5 million lawsuit against new world pictures and Rip Torn.
0: Oh, get out. And she was okay with ghost. All right. (laughs) What the (laughs) (laughs) the (laughs) fuck? What the hell? So like, like, even at the time, I remember thinking, well, I kind of think this is okay. It's a little weird. Like, this is a little goofy.
1: The the jury, they find in favor of New World. So, it, it obviously, I told you the movie's on Tubi. It gets out. She does not stop the movie from being released. It yeah. You know, she gets nominated for all the Golden Raspberries. They're terrible reviews that say she's never... You know, let me just tell you, though. If you feel bad for her, remember that it is just four years later that Sister Act storms into theaters and changes... A young Midwestern boy's life.
0: That's me. Uh so everything worked out for Whoopi Goldberg. But everything, everything pretty much did work out for Whoopi.
1: But she had a moment. You know, when you're down and you're like, I wish I could file a five million dollar lawsuit against this person who's made me really upset. Just remember, in four years you might have your own sister act.
0: That's right. And that's why we pray.
1: Going, <laughs> that's why we pray.
0: Pray. <laughs> just right. to make it through the day. Gotta, that's right. So,
1: okay, let's let's wrap this up from the Harry Nelson perspective of things. What the hell happens to this guy, right? I wish I could tell you that they had their sister act. He'd already had a sister act. Harry Nelson's life pretty much implodes. So, remember how I told you that there was this person who had been put as the president of Hawkeye Entertainment.
0: Yeah, well, okay, what was that guy's name?
1: Well, so there was the crazy banker guy, and then there was a woman who was named uh, president. Her name was Cindy Sims. Okay. So in 1991, uh, let me just read from the LA Times again here. This is a 1994 article after Harry Nelson dies, spoiler alert, of a heart attack in 1994. Nilsen was blindsided when he and other clients of business manager Cindy Sims discovered in 1991 that she had been taking their money. Uh, she, and this is crazy, she eventually pleaded guilty to three counts of grand theft and served, you want to guess how many years she served in prison?
0: Two. Two.
1: Two years in state prison. Yeah. Quote, this is from Nilson. We went to bed one night, a financially secure family of eight. By the way, dude likes to fuck. And we woke up the next morning with $300 in our checking account.
0: Ah, wow.
1: According to Nelson's letter, because this is a letter he filed with the court, Sims even took foreclosure notices off his home so he wouldn't find them. A sentencing report says that Cindy Sims claimed she deceived other clients by taking money to help keep Nilsen and his company from going under, fearing that failure might lead him to suicide. Nilsen wrote that he thought he was worth $5 million only to find out he was virtually penniless. Depression ensued as he tried desperately to get a record deal. This is another quote. "I've I've gone through my Rolodex till the corners are all bent. I've called all my friends and spread the word that I need work. Some gave him money, such as a $25,000 loan from Ringo Starr that shows up in the court records. When he died in 1994, uh, or maybe 1993, he had been working on a new album and a compilation of his work was set to come out that next year in February, 94. It's a tragic end. And honestly, I knew that he had a tragic end, and I think I thought that he had killed himself.
0: Me too. I thought something terrible had happened to him. Well, it's pretty
1: terrible, but he ends up dying of a heart attack. I mean, his health
0: was shot. He
1: He did not take care of himself after all the drugs and such. But he also was in a really rough sort of life circumstances near the end too.
0: It's really interesting... I mean he, the the thing I guess I didn't really think about or, or, or was uneducated about with his career is that how far back in the sixties he was. So
1: far back. So, I mean he, he dies in ninety-four and he has like a full like thirty-year career.
0: Right. Enough to where the 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 Derek Taylor story you mentioned is amazing. Yeah. The Beatles story about him having all these these Harry Nielsen records and it's like, what the hell? Like imagine how that would be for us if we were, it was the 1960s and you and I had kinks records yeah, and we're like, yeah. this is, this totally. is heavy. This is heavy as shit. Well, you know, it's like we would be so super stoked. And it's right? crazy
1: because, and this is the point I want to make. This is another one of those sliding doors things. What if Harry had just lost this fascination with film? What if he'd stuck right. with music? He quit doing music I mean, he did music, but he quit making albums in 1979.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was trying to get there. That's what I wanted to get to. Yeah, he quit.
1: His last record came out in '79.
0: Yeah, which to me is crazy considering how. That's why
1: I thought he had killed himself in like the early '80s or late '70s. Like I, I did not realize that he'd had this ten years. Of a career trying to make it in film, and made a movie with Whoopi Goldberg and Rip Torn. That is the wildest thing I've ever heard.
0: Yeah, with no other people in the movie other than
1: well. Whoopi. So there's a couple of brief glimpses. You get Elliot Gould for like two minutes.
0: <laughs> well, thank heavens. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, uh, I was thinking, may- I was thinking maybe if you had like, you know, Rip Taylor. Or if you had Weird Al or something.
1: Unfortunately uh, not. Wow. Uh, I, I do want to know your favorite Harry Nelson song or how much Me and My Arrow means to you. If you want to send us an email, it's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Shouts again to Steve H. for listening to the show and giving us the push we needed to do a full Harry Nelson episode and get into some weird shit. I did not know about any of this, Steve. I hope we've informed you about some things you didn't know as well.
0: I sure do love there. I do have a Harry Nilsson song that I love. Do you have one that's your favorite?
1: You're breaking my heart.
0: Oh, you like that one? Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. Oh, mine is the other direction. It is jump into the fire. That's my favorite one. All right. Um,
1: Let's hear a little bit of that. Uh, What should people keep doing until next time?
0: Keep telling stories.